I have the privilege today to deliver the last sermon of the series, Truth and Wisdom, Pastor Jeff started a few weeks ago. And I get to tell you a story, which is commonly called as the parable of the shrewd servant. Talking about stories, I just want to give you a little bit of information. Our outreach department just launched a podcast series. Yes, you heard it right, a podcast series, which has been a dream of many people in the church, and finally it is coming to fruition. Uh, the podcast series is called The Kitchen Table, and the tagline is Small Talk, Big Conversations. Um, I, I won't tell you what it represents. You have to listen to the episode. You can watch the episode in our YouTube channel, and every department will put a link to somewhere up in this uh, window. Uh, but don't click it now, because if you click, you will see the first season, 10 episodes, and you will start binge-watching. Uh, it will take at least three, four hours for you to do the whole thing because you will see different stories, showcase different stories of Lake Avenue Church, and you will hear a scientist uh, from JPL talking about science, and you have an artist from Pasadena Playhouse uh, talking about art. Uh, so you get the variety of talents uh, God has invested in our community. And again, uh, it is part of an outreach, so I want you to like the videos, and I want you to share the videos, and I also want you to subscribe to The Kitchen Table, our podcast series, Small Talk, Big Conversations. Now, since I did my plugging, uh, let's go to the scripture. Uh, again, the parable known as the story, or the parable of the shrewd servant. This comes from Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read from verses 1 all the way to 9. And feel free to stand with me if you can. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age 
are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a story which is very complicated for us to understand. It is full of unsavory characters and a seemingly irredeemable plot because it is about a nefarious scheme by an employee. But right off the bat, there are a couple of things that stick out like a, like a sore thumb. Don't you think so? Well, the first one, I would say, how in the world a master would applaud a manager who just ripped him off? That doesn't make any sense. Even worse, how could Jesus use this guy who did apparently a very illegal or immoral thing as an example for us? So let me put this story in another context so that it might be easier for us to uh, analyze, at least for the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Say you go to your bank, say Bank of America, that's where we bank normally, and uh, if you put some money in the savings account, and I don't know, I don't have a savings account right now, but I don't know how much they give you, 1%, that is the interest, I guess. I recently checked it was below 1% because of this. Okay, let's say they give you 1% for opening a savings account and put your money in. But you can take a credit card from the same bank, and they will give you their money, or probably the money you have invested, at 24%, right? Minimum. Oh, it goes all the way up to 36 and beyond. Now, you take the money at 24% with the credit card, and then you spend the way you like it, and then if you forget to uh, make the payment, they will add another fee on top of it, then interest on top of it, and in the end, God forbid, you will find yourself in a situation that you won't be able to repay them because the debt is too much. Then the only option left in your mind is bankruptcy, right? You, you said, well, I can't pay this back. I'm going to declare bankruptcy. Now, that's not good for the bank, does it? So they can approach you through a debt consolidator, right? And the debt consolidator will come to you and say, well, don't declare the bankruptcy yet. We will negotiate with the bank or all your debtors, and the bank will call you and say, you know what, we feel very generous. We don't want you to pay back the whole money you owe. We will give you a 50% discount on what you owe. And then you thought, wow, what a deal. What a deal, right? But you saw what happened? They are still getting 12% out of your money, which you deposited at 1%, okay? The point I'm trying to make is, I know it is a very simplistic way of looking at the banking system, and I know I'm not completely right, and my daughter studies economics, I'm going to hear how, how many ways I was wrong, but you get the point. I was trying to give you a framework in which 
the bank is happy even though they got only half of what they were owed, and you are happy because you are still paying less than what you thought you were going to pay, and the debt consolidator who is the manager between you and the bank is also happy because he negotiated a deal. He did everything within his power and legitimate authority to bring down that gift. Now, I, like I said, I hope it will give you a picture of what happened because uh, back in the days, usury was a very uh, prevalent system. People used to give money, lend money for exorbitant rate. And even in the Old Testament, there are laws which is preventing usury because, because it was a cutthroat. I mean, it was much worse than any businesses what we see today. So this person probably was owing only 20 or 30 measures of wheat. Now it ended up becoming 100, and now that is reduced to 80 or 50. It is, he is still getting a good deal, but the manager is not really losing anything, and the debt consolidator, or sorry, the master is not really losing anything, and the master, who is the middleman, has done a good job, right? Now, not only that, even otherwise, you, you had to read that parable very clear, very meticulously in a way, because that parable is told in a very different circumstances. Normally when Jesus tells a parable, he will say, the kingdom of God is like this, right? Or the children of God is like this, or something like that. But if you read that parable closely, he did not say that parable about the kingdom of God, there are two audience if you read Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 starts with, now he was also saying to his disciples. So the story was told to the disciples. Now if you go to verse 14, it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So he was telling this story to his audience, which is the disciples, but he is talking about group B, which is, you know, again, coming to verse 9, uh, 8, which says, you know, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their kind than the sons of light. There are two kinds of audience in the room, sons of light and the sons of this age. Now he is talking to, he is telling a story to the sons of light, but he is telling a story about the sons of this age, the sons of this world. So there is this juxtaposition of these two groups, okay? So this story is not particularly, Jesus is applauding anything happening in the story, but this is the way that is happening in the world. Now you can learn a lesson from that. So what do we learn from that? What a lesson from that. And Jesus said very clearly, eight, the verse eight, it says the manager, because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd. So shrewdness is something you can learn. Now that's a little tricky for us to even begin to understand, right? Because uh, shrewdness is not considered a, a, a virtue, it is a vice rather than a virtue, right? 
So let, let me, you know, if you really go to the actual word which is used there, a Greek word, know that I, I'm, I'm fond of using Greek words, but when, when it comes to this kind of complicated uh, issues, we need to go back to the root word. The word which is used is this, thronimos, okay, P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S. I guess I got it right. Thronimos, okay. Now, phronimos is definitely not shrewdness. It is just not wise. It is not just being prudent. It's not just being thoughtful. See, these are some of the words that's very difficult to translate into another language, whether English or not. So I'll give you uh, a context in which phronimos can be used today. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the show Shark Tank. It's one of my favorite shows in television. Um, I, I consider myself an entrepreneurial person, and I, I was in the world of business and corporate world before, so I, I kind of resonate with that show, Shark Tank. And also, some of you know that the voice of Shark Tank, Phil Crowley, you know, when they open, you know, that Phil Crowley's voice you hear, and he's part of our congregation. Phil and, and their wonderful family is part of this congregation, you know that. But uh, Shark Tank, if you don't know, is a metaphor for a panel of venture capitalists, right? And these investors sit in a room, and then entrepreneurs walk into this room with their business ideas, plans, and uh, models, and all that kind of stuff, and they pitch their idea, hoping that one of these sharks, which is one of these venture capitalists, will take a stake in their company for a particular dollar amount. So that's essentially what the show is. And if the sharks like it, then they will have a handshake agreement at the end. But very often, that's not how the show ends. Because the sharks are very smart people. They have seen the world, they have made money, they are all billionaires, right? And so they, they tear apart the proposal who is brought, brought or the presentation by these entrepreneurs. And they, they really criticize it. And they really find faults and they really meticulously analyze it and come up with all kind of arguments against their business model, their plan, because most of these ideas being pitched are very raw and very unproven concept. And, and quite often at the end of the show, and many of their hopes and their dreams are crushed and this, this show, or, the, or, the, or being a shark, is not for the faint of heart, right? But these sharks are not bad people, even though they come out as very rude, very mean, very arrogant. They are not bad people. They are good people. They are doing a lot of service to the community. They have earned their money in the right ways. But one thing I can tell them about, tell, tell, tell about them, is they are phronimous. Did you get the picture? They are phronimous because they have practical wisdom and they have a particular kind of temperament 
to analyze what is reality and come out with very smart and practical conclusion. That may leave them unpopular. They may not be the nicest people you might see on earth. It doesn't matter, but they are smart. So the better way, like Pastor Chuck uh, did an amazing sermon. If you haven't heard it, you have to hear it. Uh, last week's sermon. And when he read two verses from the Old Testament about the same thing, shrewdness, and the word that came out in both verses was prudent. Prudence, right? So I would actually translate this parable as the closest possible, which is the parable of the prudent servant. Now, what do we learn from, you know, I don't have time, you know, almost run out of time already, almost. Um, but one thing I learned from Shark Tank, I'm going to share with you. And, uh, and that is something what you can learn from people who are phronimous. You know, whenever people come to Shark Tank, and, uh, and sometimes they have this fantastic idea. And you know that, wow, this is where I want to put the money in. This is going to happen. They have everything right. But the people who pitch the ideas themselves are very, sometimes they are strange. Sometimes they are very disorganized. Sometimes they don't have the credibility or they don't have the tenacity to pursue that dream. They are just idea people. And I almost always, the sharks don't invest in them, even though, invest in this project, even though the project itself is very good. And sometimes I've seen people come with, you know, very average or not so great ideas, but these people are very smart, they have credibility, they are ready to leave everything, their job and everything, and they are willing to pursue that dream, and the sharks invest in them. See, what I've seen, what I've learned from them is that you don't invest in projects, you invest in people. That's a repeated theme that if you watch the show. And that is a very phronimous thing to do. Now that is a phronimous thing that this man in the story did, right? Because Luke chapter 16 verse 4 says, I know what I shall do. This is what he was contemplating. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he decided to reduce the debt, and he could have pocketed a kickback from them and put it in the bank and invested in real estate or whatever you invest. But instead of investing in money again, which he squandered anyway, he started investing in people. He thought relationship is a better investment than real estate or anything else. Now that makes him very, very phronimous. Very phronimous, isn't he? Now, the story, the moral of the story is, Jesus said it very clearly. So I'm going to read that verse, which is uh, the last verse we read, 16.9. And I say to you, Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And I know it's a complicated verse and I'm not going to unpack. But essentially, what Jesus said is make friends for yourself. Make friends for yourself. You know, in the 1930s, uh, there was a very famous book 
published called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I'm pretty sure you have all read it, particularly if you're baby boomers or Gen X, and you know, I'm from a Gen X generation. Uh, I remember reading that book, it was amazing. It was a very insightful book, but I, I didn't like the title of that because it says how to win friends. And I, I don't think friends are something you win like winning a lottery. Jesus didn't say win friends, Jesus said make friends. That means a certain kind of investment that has to be done for your friends. Don't you think so? Because if you win friends, you will lose them. But if you make friends, you will keep them. And this is particularly important in this uh, very shallow world of social media we live in. And I'll tell you a real story. Uh, don't get offended, but this is a real story and I just came to my mind. A um, couple years ago, I wrote a book and I have a very nice manuscript and I had an agent and the agent pitched it to some of the main publishers uh, in, in, in the industry. Um, and I had already published another book with a major publisher, Fortress Press. They published big, you know, somehow. I, all I'm saying is that I'm, I was not just a newbie and I have an agent, as you know, living in Los Angeles. It's not easy to have an agent. But anyway, so I pitched this and, uh, and, uh, and I got a response from many publishers. The first one that came was from a major publisher. I'm not going to disclose the name. And they said, oh, this, we really love the manuscript. This is a very interesting topic. Hardly anybody writes about it. But here is the problem, Matthew. I'm going to paraphrase this conversation, okay? So here is the problem, Matthew. We don't publish books anymore. We publish the authors, right? We want celebrity authors. So how many Facebook friends do you have? <laughs> that was the question. And uh, I said, well... I don't even have a personal account on Facebook. I have a ministry account. Um, I don't have a Facebook friend. See, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we will make some arrangements. So they said they will refer me to a publicist. And, the, and I had some interesting conversations, so I'm going to summarize the conversation. The publicist was saying that, oh, don't worry about having Facebook friends. It's very easy to win friends or to make friends in, in, at Facebook. This is what you want, we want you to do. Um, open an account, Matthew P. John, and then say something against the president or for the president. It doesn't matter. Either way, either way you're fine because you will get a lot of friends if you say something against the president or for the president. And I'm like, um, I am not an American citizen. I'm a Canadian citizen. So I think it is very inappropriate for me to say something against the American president. I won't say anything against the American president, but I can say something about the Canadian premier, <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Uh, but they said, no, 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 we don't care about Canadians. No, that's not important. And, and then they said, oh, okay, then we can do another thing. You can speak to the racial tensions in the society. This is, again, you might, this is kind of a, paraphrased versions of the conversation I had in real life, and you know this is true whether you like it or not. And they said, you know what, why don't you say something against the white people or against the black people so you can speak into the racial tension, then you will get a lot of friends either way. Then I said, no, I don't think I can say, do that because I'm not white, I'm not black, I'm from India, I can say a lot of I have a lot of dirt about Indian people. I can say a lot of things about Indian people. They say, oh, 
Now, nobody cares about Indian people. <laughs> so um, you, that, that's interesting, right? You know, because I don't hear anything bad being said about Indian people too. In that sense, I kind of felt offended and left out. The point I'm trying to make is, see, we live in a shallow world where making friends or winning friends is about talking against something. And that's a repeated word I heard. See, if we win friends like that, we will lose them. But Jesus said, make friends. And I'm very proud to say that I have some very good friends in different parts of the world. I lived in four different countries. And there are some of them willing to take a jump on a plane and come here and meet me if I am in trouble. Even though we are not connected through Facebook or anything else. Because there is only one way to make friends, dear friends, and that is to invest in them. There is no other way to make friends. Invest in your friends. See, that is precisely what this man did. He made friends. And he knew his time was up. He, has going, he is going to exit into the new reality. And he had a very clear exit strategy. That is the last word I want to bring in from Shark Tank. If you watch Shark Tank, that is the one thing they always say. What is your exit strategy. See, that's the difference between angel investors, but they, they are not angels, but you know, angel investors are investors who basically support a cause and they will put, give you money and they will give you, you know, they will be happy for the percentage of that whatever yield that is coming from the business. And they are married to you and they are married to your idea, in the sense married to the project. But the venture capitalists are not like that. They are not particularly married to the idea. Their idea is to make a risky investment at the beginning of the business, and when it, when it takes that big curve, and they want to cash out, and they want to go somewhere else. That's what makes them sharks. That's what makes them venture capitalists, right? So they always look for an exit strategy. What is your exit strategy? And one day, we are all going to live. If COVID is not going to get us, something else will. I'm telling you, you know, I'm sorry to break out the bad news. But that is the reality. What is our exit strategy? Jesus says in this parable, invest your earthly riches. That's what it means. The wealth of unrighteousness is nothing but a phrase which is used for the secular influence you have in this world. Use it for a sacred purpose. Use your earthly gains for heavenly rewards. Use investments in money in winning or making friends who will last till eternity. Not in the cyberspace, not around you, but the friends who will come with you to eternity, the friends who will welcome you in eternity. That is how you become phronimous. When I preached the last sermon here, I introduced you a man called a rich fool. And he was not a bad guy, he was rich. The only problem he had was he did not have an exit strategy. He had a great harvest, he had a lot of money, he kept on building and building, and one day God said, I am going to ask your life back, where is it going to be? Whatever money you start, where is it going to end up? And then he realized that he did not have an exit strategy. He realized that he was building Stairs that go nowhere. But this man, 
He was not just rich, or he was not probably not rich, but he was phronimous. He had a very clear exit strategy. He knew one day I'm going to leave my, this master's house, then there will be a red carpet welcome for me in, in the new place, in the new reality I am going to find myself in. My brothers and sisters, and I want you to listen to this phronimous servant very, very carefully. And I want, I, I will promise you, you know, when you walk into that eternity, there'll be people coming to you and saying, thank you, sir, for writing that check to Africa or India or Texas. I don't care. And because of that check, you don't know me, but I know you. Because of that check, we had a little Bible study there. We heard about Jesus. Thank you for streaming your service. Thank you for the audiovisual team. And you didn't know what you were doing. Because of that, we heard a sermon. Because of that, we, we heard a song. And thank you. And you didn't know they existed. But you will see a lot of friends in eternity that you didn't think you had in this world. And that is the exit strategy we need to have. And I'm going to close with one episode of Shark Tank, which really made me change my attitude about the show in a positive way. Um, this is, uh, I'm not going to show you the episode. I don't want to end up in a legal battle or something like that. So this is from season six. I think it's year 2014. There are two young girls came and pitched an idea. And uh, these girls are engineers. And they are from Caltech. Their degrees are from Caltech, MIT, and Stanford. Now you can see how smart they are. And also they broke that gender stereotype. There is this you know, stereotype that the women don't do STEM. And I know I'm from a STEM field back in the days, so I understand that stereotype is there. But they broke that stereotype. This young woman, and I think their name is Alicia Brooks and Bettina Chen. And they came and they pitched this idea about a toy business, some, some self-automated -autom toys or something like that. It's a toy business. And right from the beginning, the main shark is Kevin O'Leary, and he calls himself Mr. Wonderful. And he is from a toy world. That's where he made his money. So he knows exactly what he's talking about. And they are asking a ridiculous evaluation at that time. They were asking for half a million dollars for 5% stake in the company. That's ridiculous. Not only the half a million dollar, 5% is too small for a shark to bite. Anyway. But they pitched the show, and Kevin O'Leary started pounding on them. How many ways this is wrong? And, and I agree with them, and it didn't make any sense. You know, these girls are smart. They are not particularly business savvy. That's the way I thought. So, you know, the sharks are going out one after the other, one after the other. They said, no, 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 sorry. No, we are not in. Then Mark Cuban <laughs> speaks up. Now, Mark Cuban, I particularly not, don't like him, and he's, again, very obnoxious sometimes, rude. He doesn't care if I say it, I'm sure. But, but, but that's the way, that's his, you know, very abrupt, that's the way he comes out. But he suddenly speaks up and he says this. I'm going to read this quote, you know, just verbatim. Um, so forgive some language, you may not like it, but this is exactly what he said to this girl. He stands up and says this. Guys, growing up in Pittsburgh, my dad did upholstery on cars. If you had told me I would have this net worth right now, I would have laughed at you. 
Now I have kids, including two daughters, seven and ten. Now my biggest fear in life after my kids' health is that they don't turn out to be jerks, that they don't have a sense of entitlement. So I am going to make you an offer, but it has contingencies. I am going to offer you $500,000 for 5%, which is exactly what they asked. He didn't even negotiate. Exactly what they asked. But the contingency is this, that my daughters Alicia and Alexis can come out and spend time with you guys. He liked those girls. He loved those girls. And he said, "Be and so that my daughters can be part of it. You know, I am trying to put them in a position where they have good role models. Because all the things in life I can buy, that is something I cannot buy. That is why I want to be part of it. So I am investing in you, man. And at that point, I thought, man, I learned from Mark Cuban much more than I have learned from many, many pastors. He did not invest in the project. He did not even invest in those girls, but he was investing in his, his girls, his daughters, because I don't know if he's a man of faith, but he knew that his exit strategy, when he leaves this planet Earth, he will leave behind two beautiful daughters and he has a son too, and he wanted them to be in a position to be an example in this world, and he don't, he don't want them to be entitled kids. And I thought, man, what a phronimous guy. What a prudent investment he made. Would you invest in your kids? Would you invest in the future? Would you have an exit strategy? I'm going to invite the worship team right now. And I'm going to close in prayer. Brothers and sisters, and I want you to join with me on a prayer tonight, today particularly. If you don't have an exit strategy, I don't know whether you're a Christian, whether you believe in God, but I'm going to tell you one day, this life is going to come to an end. The master of the house is going to push you out and you are going to enter another reality. And whatever you invested will be given back to you in the eternal realm. It depends on the kind of investment you make. What is your exit strategy? Can you make friends who will last till eternity? Who would welcome you in eternity? Thank you, Matthew John. Thank you for that little sermon you did. Thank you for the little story you shared. That changed my life. That is what I live for. I don't invest in real estate. There's nothing wrong in investing in real estate. But I invest in relationship because that is the only thing, that is the only thing that is going to carry us into the next world. And there I know, even if I don't have any Facebook friends, the best friend I can ever have. And as the songwriter said, what a friend we have in Jesus. That Jesus is going to be my best friend in eternity and I'm going to invest in him and I invite you to invest your life into his hands and if you have not accepted Jesus as your friend and as your savior, as your, as your personal redeemer, this is the time for you to do that. Let's pray. Father God, 
We live in a very, very strange world. There is nothing that is stable that we can look around and find. We thought science is going to save us. We thought money is going to save us. We are living in one of the richest countries in the world. But Lord, we just succumb to an invisible virus. <laughs> Not a Godzilla, just an invisible virus. And we are sitting in our homes like chickens because we are even afraid to go out. And thank you for teaching us this humility. And thank you for giving us the glimpses of the eternity that is going to come. Thank you for helping us realize that this world is not our home. But you are our best friend in eternity. And thank you for your friendship. Thank you for calling us your children. Thank you for inviting us to this eternal existence of joy and bliss and glory. Thank you for allowing us to be phronimous. In Jesus' name, amen.